If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. During this difficult time, we want to make it as easy as possible for our readers to get their copy of BBC History Magazine or BBC History Revealed. So for the next few months, we'll deliver your favourite magazine direct to your door with no delivery charge. From today, you can save up to 70% off the shop price and subscribe from just £9.99. That's just £1.66 per issue. There's never been a better time to get your favourite history magazine delivered direct to your home. To take advantage of this unmissable offer, please visit www buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra and choose your magazine. Don't forget, all of our magazines are also available digitally on your mobile or tablet device. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra for more information. We look forward to welcoming you. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's episode, I spoke to historians Sam Willis and James Daybell, who are the creators of the Histories of the Unexpected book and podcast series, which takes a sideways look at some of history's most popular topics. Late last year, Sam and James released four new books in their series on the Tudors, the Romans, the Second World War and the Vikings, the last of which was the subject of this conversation. 
So you've recently released four histories of the unexpected books. When you were deciding what topics to delve into, what secured Vikings place on the list? Ooh, um, I love the Vikings. I love the Vikings as well. The Vikings were something that I had I studied as an undergraduate, and I studied um, later on in life, and had taught it uh, when I taught in the US. And it was something that I really, really wanted to write a book on. And there, I think there is an endless fascination with the Vikings among our, our good public as yep. well. And I, as a, a trained archaeologist, I did lots of Viking um, Viking work as an undergraduate. And I absolutely loved it. And it's got a kind of an important part in my own personal history as well. One of the things James and I like doing is talking about how different histories all sort of linked together. In this respect, it's my personal history. Um, I vividly remember being taken to the Isle of Man uh, by my dad to revise for some exams. I can't remember what it was for, but we thought we'd get away and go and stay in a hotel. And um, I toured around the Isle of Man, which, if you don't know, it's completely stuffed with the most amazing Viking sites. So it was something that kind of chimed with me. And plus, it's so rich in material. Um, and there are some very, very clever scholars out there doing really interesting work reinterpreting the Viking period. So it was just perfect for what James and I do. As always, you start the book in an unexpected way with the history of keys. And I didn't even know Vikings had keys. How did you start there? <laughs> no, it's a great example because when um, we sort of brainstorm um, when we do anything essentially, but with these books, we sat down or James and I are often driving to our shows. So we've got plenty of time to talk about what we're going to do. And we brainstormed this um, and, you know, the first thing we did is like, well, what's the established way of doing Vikings? And it's all about invasion. It's all about ships and seafaring and all that sort of stuff. Um, I said, right, well, let's let's think about it in an unexpected way. And James said, well, obviously, you do the history of keys. <laughs> yeah, well, of course, like, what? Also, just structurally, the key opens the, the door of the book. So we wanted, that's why, <laughs> that's why we wanted to start with it first. But it was a way of... It, the whole the whole concept of this series and of the Vikings is that with our histories of the unexpected, what we tried to do was to take topics like keys and then connect them to other big topics. So keys were all about Vikings. What we wanted to do with this series, though, was rather than do that, was basically flip it on its head so that the Vikings then became about different kinds of topics and they were a sort of way in. So the key is a way of looking at a variety of topics related to the Vikings, not only about power, but also about female power and, and housewives as, um, as figures within Viking society who would have often held the keys, had control of the keys, and therefore the keys are all about property and privacy and ownership and legality and being able to control space and things, whether it be controlling domestic space within the household, whether it be controlling military arms, so a, a chest that has arms in it, whether it be controlling a fort. So it was a great way of just getting into all sorts of Viking topics. So we could look at it and say our keys are all about power, but it was also clear that for the Vikings, they were all about power. I mean, it was yes. it was very yeah. clear. So um, there's lots of evidence of particularly women having symbolic keys worn around their waist yep. um, as a symbol of being someone who had access to something, someone who controlled access. Um, anyway, so that was the it was the first example, and it was completely perfect. It's, um, you know, you say, I will do the history of keys, and everyone goes, what? And then once you explain it, you realise it's not only interesting, but it's 
surely fundamental to the way that we understand Viking society, because who has access to something, who controls something in any society is hugely important. And for the Vikings, they, they, they well, one of the ways they dealt with that was focusing on who had, who was the key bearer. One of the most fascinating aspects of Viking society was, of course, the belief system. And I think a lot of people are really interested in Norse myths. What were you surprised to learn or uncover about them through these unexpected angles? I took the lead on a chapter on mischief, Mm. um, which is all about... The the Vikings are so into mischief and they're so into winding each other up and teasing each other. Uh, They've actually got a god of mischief called Loki, who's fantastic. Actually, I was looking at this um, this morning. One of the great things about Loki is that he's got some um, wonderful images of him which have appeared over time. And James and I have just recorded a podcast on the history of puppets. James, this is a picture of Loki. Who does he look like? He looks like Mr. Punch. He does look like Mr. Punch. He looks exactly the same as Mr. Punch. Yep, he's got a big nose. He's got a curved chin. He's wearing a kind of jester's outfit. Absolutely fascinating. So um, one of the things I liked about it in terms of the belief system and the, and the understanding of gods was that there was a naughty god. And uh, and so we wrote a chapter on mischief and how important it was to the Vikings. And, you know, the, the fundamental point is that it's so important that they've got a god of mischief. I think just fundamentally one of the most difficult things as, as scholars who are not trained as Viking scholars uh, is how do you approach something like that belief system and how do you approach the, the, the range of sources for the Vikings? I mean, that was something that I found... And challenging, but also deeply, deeply rewarding because you've got there. Um, I'm a, an early modernist, so work on the 16th and 17th century, and in particular, there the written record is very well established. You've got material culture as well, but the written record is very well established. Um, whereas with the Vikings, so little written record from the Vikings themselves survives. Um, so you're seeing them either through the lens of archaeological finds or written records, written documents that are produced by others, so the Vikings are termed as other, or you're looking at this sort of the sagas, um, and so which are written, you know, hundreds of years later in a completely different period, um, and involve a lot of these belief systems and legends about the Vikings that all sort of weave into each other. And so when you when when you try and write something around keys or around break-ins or whatever you're bleeding the two, all of these in together, really. So you're bleeding the the sort of belief system in with um, the written documents, with the archaeological material. And I think that's what I found so so challenging, but also so rewarding. But it means that it, it means that the Vikings are very, very slippery. They are very slippery customers. Well, I think we should just um, give everyone a sense of the different ways we've done this. So we've pulled the, the Viking world apart in the following way. We've looked at the history of keys, graffiti, nicknames, mischief, hair grooming, hot springs and saunas, break-ins, colour, toys, teeth, doors, goading, it's my favourite chapter, criminal profiling, birds, luck, friendship, fun, double standards, silk, and staffs. So there's a real explosion there. But I just wanted to pick up on what James was saying about the sagas. So one way of talking about the history of the Vikings is actually talking about the history of imagination. So if you come down to the sagas, so these were written hundreds of years sometimes after the actual Viking period. It's someone who's living in medieval, I don't know, might be Norway, might not be, might be England, might be France, imagining what the Viking period would have been like based on a certain amount of information that they've received. 
Um, and that's one of the things I find completely fascinating about it, is being able to unpick the truth and the reality and being able to peel away the, fast, the, the, the imagination of it. Um, when, when you read through the list of chapter titles there, you said your favourite chapter was goading. And I'm going to have to ask why. Oh, well, goading? Um, <laughs> so just <laughs> <it's> rude, <laughs> basically. The, the Vikings were very playful, um, and they were very provocative. And one of the key things that happened in Viking society, as told to us by the sagas, all right, so it may not actually be true, but there's enough evidence to suggest it was pretty true, is that Viking men were goaded into action, were wound up by women, by uh, principally their partners, but often by their mothers as well. So it was, um, and there's lots and lots of evidence of this. Wars are begun by women goading men into standing up for their for their pride, for their honour. Um, and it's the, the sagas are absolutely full of this. And what's great and interesting about it is the way that you can look at the history of goading in terms of female power. So on the one hand, this story, the all of these stories about women exercising their power suggests that it was it was a way that, that women had power and could exercise power in the Viking world. They had a voice and they could influence their world. But another way of looking at it is saying it's actually a misogynistic way of looking at the world because often what they're doing is they're goading the men into doing something bad. Usually wars have begun, usually murders happen, in which case the Viking men can turn around and say, well, it wasn't my idea. It was my wife's idea. It was my mother's idea it gives the men an excuse for their bad behavior uh, yeah i think i think methodologically though it's how it's really what you've put your finger on is how we study gender history there and what you've got is a sort of series of male voiced sources where women one reading of it could be that it is misogynistic and that these women are seen as nagging and goading but read from a feminist point of view you can read against the grain and you can see that as something that is about female agency. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things just reading through a lot of the recent work on the Vikings is the way in which feminism has breathed life into it. Um, you know, Viking studies has for a long time been a very conservative form of history, you know, and it has been associated with archaeology, with very sort of strict narratives. But actually, if you look at some of the recent work, there's been some really exciting sort of new discoveries fed into it. And this relates to the chapter on staffs, which is the final chapter. And that's one of my favourite chapters because it's all about witches. Um, and this was, if you imagine, you know, generations of male archaeologists going out, digging up graves and finding um, metal sort of rods about, I'm, I'm measuring about 60 centimetres, 80 centimetres with my hands here, um, but often these were interpreted as, you know, stirring stirring sticks or sort of cooking rods or something like that. And over the last decade or so, a number of sort of feminist scholars, because feminism seems to have sort of breathed into archaeology, they've interpreted these instead of being um, cooking sticks, actually staffs or wands that were associated with uh, witches or with the female seer. So a woman who um, who had the gift of prophecy, who could see into the future, predict what was going to happen. And there have been a number of sort of very detailed studies done of female graves that have these kinds of goods and a range of other 
grave goods that would associate them with being a sort of female prophetess. So it's so that you know it's it's quite a it's quite a sort of new and exciting field. I think. I think if I were going to retrain again, I think I'd either be a I'd either be a Roman historian because uh, we've written on the Romans and I love that as well. Or I would be a I'd be a Viking scholar. And I think all that that you just mentioned ties in quite interestingly to recent debates about whether women could have been warriors in Viking yes. times. And it's something we do throughout all of our books. We did it in our main book yeah. and then now in the four series books. We've absolutely made sure that we are across the latest thinking, the latest scholarship. And it's about celebrating the way that people can think about the past nowadays. It's fundamentally different what we can do and how historians, archaeologists, anthropologists actually think now. And um the most rewarding thing that we do with histories of the unexpected is, you know, we're we're reaching out, we're coming uh, to 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 these new fabulous thinkers. Is that actually, you know, think about it this way, and you go, oh my god, it's obviously it's an amazing way to think about it. You know, who knows if it's true, but it sounds great. <laughs> to lower the tone a bit from highbrow scholarship, um, do everybody <laughs> everybody is always fascinated in historical hygiene, which is something you do look at here with bathing. You look at hairstyles. You yeah. look at teeth. Uh, yeah. particularly in some horrifying details. What can you tell us about that? About teeth. Let's start with teeth. Yeah. <laughs> teeth one of the things about, about teeth uh, that struck us, we started off by looking at a study that had discovered a series of, um, of teeth that had had markings on them, like hatchings on them. And you thought, what, you know, what is this all about? And there are a number of studies that have basically said that actually it's about all about identity that on one heart, in, in one context, these were markings of ferocious warriors. And there's evidence that, um, well, there's an argument that's been put forward that when uh, the Vikings attacked, they would have sort of stained teeth. So they would they have would, carved grooves. They would, they would have car carved grooves across their, across their teeth, and these would be sort of as part of a sort of ferocious battle cry. But actually, if you look at, um, if you look at the a range of teeth, from different groups in society. They're markings of merchants as well as warriors and people of different sort of social groupings. So it's a form of identification. Um, another form, like you say, of so of social identification was hairstyles. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about those? Yeah, there's a well, there's a fabulous quote actually. That was what I was just looking up. Um, and it's all to do with the fear associated with hair and how, how hair actually was all about fear, because hair could identify you as a Viking. There's a, a fabulous quote here from the Chronicle of John of Wallingford around um, 1250s. So he considers that the Vikings caused much trouble to the natives of the land, for they were wont, after the fashion of their country, to comb their hair every day, to bathe every Saturday, to change their garments often, and set off their persons by many frivolous devices. In this matter, they laid siege to the virtue of the married woman and persuaded the daughters, even of the noble, to be their concubines. Now, um, that's not the only description by any means. Um, contemporary description where the appearance of Vikings and their hair is, has really, really caught the eye. And it's interesting how that is linked with this fear of invasion, the fear of the other, the fear of, of a, a people coming in and changing the world as you know it. So um, you get a real sense if you saw someone with a Viking hairstyle, it would, it would cause fear. So it's not necessarily the fear that they would be in fear of these ferocious warriors because of how scary they looked. It's actually that they would be in fear of the chastity of their of their women. In other words, that these 
women would find these sort of well-groomed Vikings sexually attractive. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. My favourite is that we don't think that the Vikings blushed. <laughs> it's all to do with um, this, uh, the whole appearance issue of the Vikings. We think they turned red with anger, but not with shame. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Another chapter you have um, that I wanted to ask you about is on nicknames, and there were some spectacular <laughs> names. Um, my personal favourite has to be Einar Buttered Bread. But why were names so important? Where did they come from? Well, butter's really important. Um, oh, okay. So unexpected. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a little unexpected. Vikings <laughs> all to do with the history of butter. So what do you to make butter? What do you need? Milk. Cows. Grass. You need access to to animals and pasture. Which means it's a it's a symbol of wealth. It's a symbol of success. So um, yeah, butter was really really important to the Vikings. And um, someone who had butter on their bread, wow, they were successful. So it's a status symbol then. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there are other um, other nicknames. So as a historian, they're fascinating because they give you a window into the everyday life of Vikings. Um, and th there are historians who've done nothing but study Viking nicknames. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Here's one linked to generosity, Thordist gift giver. Um, you have ones which are linked to maybe um, to disability. You've got Ivor the Boneless, very famously. My favourite of, of, of all was the Swedish king Eric Weatherhat. 
He was cool. <laughs> so I'm sitting here with a hat on. I always wear hats, but so, um, he he was he was able to change the weather by moving his hat around. <laughs> so if he wanted the wind to blow in a different direction, he'd just turn his hat around. Um, they've all lots of them have survived, um, often on gravestones, some in the sagas, and you can get a sense of just these little sort of minutiae of of Viking everyday life. It's not very surprising, but it makes them seem extremely human. If you think about your friends, your colleagues, you know, your partner, your parents, whatever it might be, um, they all have very different personalities and they'd all, there'd be a reason for giving them, you know, a little nickname. Um, often it was associated with something embarrassing or or violent or whatever. There are a lot of fart-based nicknames. Hip thruster. Yeah, sexy <laughs> nicknames like hip thruster, yeah. uh, which does bring an image to the mind. Yeah. But the... Um, yeah. Back hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely fascinating. And we, there are stories where, where the, you can see the moment which someone has gained that nickname, but they're very, very rare. So what you have most of the time is you have the nickname, but you don't know how they got it. And there are just a couple of examples which we explore where you can you can see it, and that, that's that's wonderful. Well, one chapter title I was surprised to read in a book about Vikings was criminal profiling. <laughs> can you explain to me how that ended up in there? <laughs> um, there's been some recent scholarship which has looked at the way that Vikings are described in the sagas, and they um, there's a sense that the Vikings who are really bad, who get up to really naughty stuff, have a recognisable appearance, um, which is not necessarily just to do with their hair. So this is within the Viking community, within the Viking world. And um, there's been some scholarship which has looked into how this might be linked to excess levels of testosterone. And what the, the argument is that if you look at the way Vikings are described in the sagas there's a sense that they're teaching the readers of the sagas what to be wary of in a society where there were outlaw, you know, outlawry was a, was a key thing. And people who literally lived outside the law lived outside the protection of Viking society. And being able to physically identify someone who might be a threat was really, really important. And um, scholars now believe that that's actually survived in the sagas. It's brilliant. It's uh, genuinely fascinating. So what kind of um, identifying traits do you have for someone who you want to avoid? Let's have a look. Eyes. Shifty eyes were one. Yep. Um, eyes, very important. So you have people who've described as um, having thief's eyes or fierce-eyed or darting-eyed or sour-eyed. Um, here's a description of... Um, Egil Skallagrimson, who's a very famous um, um, guy in the, in the 13th century, um, and he's a real rogue. Eagle had very distinctive features with a wide forehead. His beard grew over a long, broad part of his face, and his chin and entire jaw were very broad. He had a thick neck and broad shoulders, was prematurely bald, and had a harsh-looking face. Goodness me. Yeah. I'd definitely avoid him. After <laughs> um, taking this sideways look at the Vikings, what do you think um, are some of the things that we've got wrong about them in popular understanding? I mean, there are a whole, a whole range of things that we've got wrong. I mean, one of the biggest um, debates, but it's not a particularly new debate, is, is what was the nature of the Vikings in terms of the Vikings who, kept, when they invaded, so do you see it as a sort of mass 
movement of people or instead do you see it as a sort of an, an elite sort of task force who came across and kind of knocked out particular settlements uh, and took hold? Um, I think one of the striking things about, if we look at the history of Britain from the perspective of the Vikings, one of the striking things is how highly centralised Britain was during the Anglo-Saxon period. So we're looking, you know, before the um, before the year one thousand, and and sort of, and then sort of slightly onwards. Um, but one of the reasons why the Vikings were able to come in and take over, uh, you know, the top half of the country, as it were, is because the system was so well set up that they could just come in, knock out a sort of central stronghold, and then use that as a sort of stronghold to control the rest of the um, the rest of the country. So I think if you look at if you look at the the numbers of Vikings who were coming across in terms of the number of people who could sit round uh, in a ship, uh, the number of people that you could have sort of standing to defend uh, one of the sort of Viking hill forts, you're actually looking at a sort of relatively small aristocratic group, you know, rather than a sort of marauding hordes. I also think the other sort of misconception about the Vikings is of them, you know, of course, as these sort of pillaging hordes of barbarians coming across. I mean, a lot of that, as everyone who's, you know, read anything on the Vikings for the last 40 years knows, is that a lot of these ideas were coming out of, you know, the writings of a few churchmen, you know, who were obviously experiencing, you know, terrifying things about the Vikings, but it said much more about the place of Christianity within the world at that time. Um, that the Vikings were seen as this scourge um, rather than an, a, a sort of an apt description of what the Vikings were like. And again, we're back to the point that we made earlier on about how it's very difficult to actually write Viking history from a Viking perspective because they're often viewed from the outside. Yeah, that's why archaeology is so important. Yeah. Um, and we know now they weren't just marauders. They were warriors, sailors, inventors, mystics, merchants, farmers, fishermen, explorers, ambassadors, diplomats, craftsmen, musicians, poets, wives, mothers, husbands, fathers, and, of course, children. Writing children are really interesting. So it's I, I'm always quite defensive of historians and archaeologists, so I think the concept of getting it wrong is not really very fair because um, historians and archaeologists you know, they do their best within the the confines of the scholarship and the thought patterns and the sources that are available to them at the time. Um, and so necessarily our understanding of the Vikings has changed and it will change. So, you know, the way that we're talking about it now might seem extremely outdated in, in 20 years' time. So, you know, I think when it comes to history, right and wrong doesn't doesn't really I think, work. I think also flipping your question around, I think it, it's what, um, and it relates to what I was saying about um, staffs earlier on, staffs being wands, effectively. It's the way in which um, you know, recent generations of scholarship have completely reinterpreted, you know, certain acts. So the chapter on break-ins, for example, that we did, which is another sort of rather odd um, title, it would seem. I mean, this is absolutely, this to me was was really fascinating because, you know, it was taking this idea of breaking into tombs, these huge earthworks, tombs of, of, you know, ruling elites. And what they were trying to do was to try and explain why they would do this. And one, an older interpretation of this is basically that people were breaking into these tombs to basically 
steal the grave goods because they're worth a lot of money. And that, But having said that, there are a number of different interpretations about it. One is that you go in to get, you know, particular um, valuable, um, almost magical artefacts like magic swords. And some of this comes from the saga material. So you'd break in to find that almost in a sort of quest-like way. The other is that you would go in and you would break the bones of the dead. So this was a sort of almost sacrilegious sort of spectacle um, you know, breaking the bones of the of the ancestors of somebody that you didn't like. The other is connected to Viking zombies. So there's stories in the sagas about there's a, a sort of um, sort of living corpse who who sort of comes out and, and terrifies the local uh, people, um, and they break into his tomb and basically just kill him in in the tomb with a with a special sword. The other thing is that actually, if you look at it, this was not not an activity that was done simply in the cover of darkness. This wasn't something secret, but in actual fact, this all of this activity was a public spectacle. And going in and desecrating a tomb um, was a part of a new elite showing that they had supremacy over an older power. So if, for example, you were a Viking and you'd come in and you'd taken over an area, um, you wanted to show your power by basically desecrating the earthworks and tombs that had been put up for the families of the of the existing power, and you would come in and ruin that and set up your own instead. So break-ins then are a public spectacle asserting your new power, which to me was was frankly astonishing. And I think what it... What it suggests is, again, is this kind of playfulness. Exactly what Sam was saying is the way in which scholars... In, because all they're doing here is that this is somebody reinterpreting the archaeological evidence, the very detailed dig case notes. Yeah, we already know it's happened. We yeah. already know it's happened, but it's the way in which they've reinterpreted it in this way that makes it about power and statecraft and, and is actually, you know... Very, very imaginative and clever. And one of the things that we we love is this idea of the historical imagination, and it and it and it's this idea that effectively, you know, his, historians try and be as objective as they can in a sort of you know old fashioned empirical way. But we know that there are gaps, and you know there are certain things that don't make sense. And so what you do as a historian is you use your imagination to try and tease out what you see as, you know, the correct interpretation of it. To finish us up, I wonder whether you could both offer the listeners one epic fact that they could share with their friends. I was in Venice this Easter and I was in the Arsenale, just on the water in the Arsenale in Venice. There's a lion and we'd written about this um, because there's a there's graf- Viking graffiti around the neck of this, of, this, um, of this lion. And so I wanted to go along and see it. And basically, this lion had, uh, it's now in Venice, but before that, it had been located in the um, in Piraeus, the port of, of Athens, uh, which during the Viking Age was part of the Byzantine Empire. And the, the lion was looted by Venetian troops in 1687 during the Great Turkish War. And it was taken as a trophy and put back in Venice uh, there. And, and basically, it looks like it was part of some sort of um, Varangian guards, sort of graffiti that had been written. Um, you can't quite make it out nowadays. I said I took a photograph of it, but couldn't read it. But but the um, the the most accurate translation of it is 
They cut him down in the midst of his forces, but in the harbour the men cut runes by the sea in memory of Horsey, a good warrior. The Swede set this on the lion. He went his way with good counsel. Gold he won in his travels. So it's this idea then that the whole the whole argument of the chapter was that Viking graffiti is about travel, Viking travel. And so what you do if you have a look at the map of the world, you look at where Viking graffiti ends up and you can see how far, you can use it as an index of how far the Vikings have travelled. So it ended up in Athens and then got tra- got taken taken on the neck of a lion yeah, to Venice. On the neck of a lion. And my favourite is that we don't think that the Vikings blushed. <laughs> it's all to do with um, this uh, the whole appearance issue of the Vikings. We think they turned red with anger, but not with shame. One of my favourites, though, is corpse doors. So court, we did a whole chapter on, on, on doors and doors are these sort of thresholds between different worlds. And there are various things about um, people being buried in doors, um, and including an elk man. So two people, including elk antlers, being buried in a door. But corpse doors are about this sort of Viking um, belief that when, the, when, the, when somebody, dis, somebody passed away, um, they would, as you carried them out of the house, their spirit would then come back in through that very same entrance and they would find their way back in. So how do you stop that happening? You cut what is called a corpse door in the house. And this would involve basically when you take the body out, when you take the body out to the funeral, you cut a hole. And then by the time the funeral is over, you've basically patched the hole back up. So the door no longer exists, and so the spirit can't find its way back into the house. That was Sam Willis and James Daybell. The latest four books in the Histories of the Unexpected series, on the Vikings, Tudors, Romans and the Second World War, are on sale now, published by Atlantic. In our current state of lockdown, Sam and James have also launched a new history homeschooling podcast series on a variety of topics from slavery and the Blitz to Tudor medicine, Norman castles and the Industrial Revolution. Each is short, fun and comes with its own to-do project. To find that, just type in Histories of the Unexpected wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Wednesday when Lewis Dartnell will be discussing how the Earth shaped human history.